This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, conventional wisdom. Having just returned from Charlotte, we're talking with two of the Democratic Party's most revered wise men, former White House Press, Press Secretary Joe Lockhart and former White House speechwriter Josh Gottheimer, about Romney and Ryan, Obama and Biden, and their supporting cast, Christian Rice, Eastwood and Kerry, Bill Clinton, and of course, and maybe just a little Jennifer Granholm. We'll reflect as best as three old Democrats can about Tampa and Charlotte, what the last two weeks mean, and where we go from here. Joe and Josh were both on the plane, as they say, with both President Clinton and during the 2004 election with Senator John Kerry, facing down these next two months in the fights of their lives. As Obama and Romney returned to the campaign trail this weekend, what pitfalls lie on the road ahead? And if 2012 is one of those sometimes plotting elections where the fundamental question is whether we'll rehire the incumbent, we'll look to the blue skies of 2016, a wide-open race and a new generation of talent waiting in the wings. Rubio, Castro, Christie, Cuomo, Ryan, Emanuel, Booker, Villaraigosa, and familiar names, Bush, Biden, and Clinton. And what about Bloomberg? But first, let's return to Charlotte, where I went down for a day this week. It was really just Clinton Day for me. I didn't really have a job, but I just needed to be part of it, because as I've told you on previous weeks, I've been to every Democratic convention since 1988. And while I didn't have a role this year, I didn't want 2012 to be the year when the streak was broken. One of the first things I did was go to uh, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, where a lot of my friends were hanging out and was sitting having a cup of coffee with my old friend Steve Silverman, and who should walk in? but Facebook's Vice President of Corporate Communications, former White House Press Secretary, Joe Lockhart. And Joe joins us now in Polyoptics. Where are you, Joe, and how is, the, how is your week in Charlotte? Uh, back in Washington, D.C., great week in Charlotte. Uh, I think uh, Democrats did a fine job of uh, both uh, firing up the base and more, probably, actually not probably, more importantly, speaking directly to independents, the, the swing voters that will decide this election. How did you spend your week? I spent my week, um, uh, the first part of the week, uh, wearing my Facebook hat. Uh, we um, held an event with uh, uh, developers who are writing software that help both voters engage with candidates and candidates engage with voters. Uh, then on Wednesday, I spent a good part of the day with President Clinton, sort of uh, looking at his speech and uh, trying to uh make sure he was ready to deliver the speech you saw. So let's set the scene, Joe. Uh, you were about to sit down. You'd ordered a Diet Coke with me at the Ritz, uh, and your your iPhone starts going off, and you're being summoned. What happens next? Oh, uh, well, you know, Josh, as you well know, once you work for a uh, president or actually any politician, whether in whatever direction you go, you always work for them. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, the president was pretty far along in uh, putting together what he wanted to say, um, but uh, he brought together a couple of people who had worked for him uh, when he was in the White House, and um, you know we just spent the day reviewing it uh, and just honing the arguments, uh, you know, paring down, adding, paring down, adding, uh, the, the way the speech process works. 
So, Joe, I've been a part of a couple Clinton speech processes back in the old days when the huge support network was in place, the family theater was decked out, there were printers brought in, people slaving over multiple laptops. Uh, was this, to what degree was it that versus the yellow legal pad situation? Well, you know, it is, um, uh, you know, technology has moved on, but as you well know, uh, you know, the president does his best writing in longhand. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the first prerequisite of trying to, of uh, being helpful, uh, and it's probably the hardest thing is being able to read that longhand. Uh, that is an <laughs> art in and of itself, uh, that I think very few people, uh, have. Uh, so maybe the only reason that a few of us, uh, still get to help is we can actually read it. Uh, but he does do his best, uh, thinking, um, you know, just writing on a pad or writing out a bunch of thoughts, having someone type it up and then starting to write again. So let's listen to some of the some of the president's uh, speech on Wednesday night, and maybe uh, reflect on how that was trying to strike and strike certain notes that Bill Clinton needed to hit at this convention. Christy, let's do the first cut. I have been honored to work with both Presidents Bush on natural disasters in the aftermath of the South Asian tsunami, Hurricane Katrina, the horrible earthquake in Haiti. Through my foundation, both in America and around the world. I'm working all the time with Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Sometimes I couldn't tell you for the life who I'm working with because we focus on solving problems and seizing opportunities and not fighting all the time. So, Joe, this was a riff that included a reference to President Eisenhower sending federal troops to Little Rock, uh, the work that President George W. Bush has done uh, in Africa, working with H.W. Uh, Bush when he was governor on the education initiative. Between the two conventions, Tampa and Charlotte, there wasn't a lot of reaching across party lines to sort of acknowledge the goodness, the essential goodness in, in public servants who happen to have a different political philosophy. As you were hanging out in the hotel room working through the draft with President Clinton on Wednesday, did this seem like a special moment where we were going to break the mold of what we'd seen in, in Tampa and also in Charlotte? Yeah, you know, it's 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 one of those things, and, and it goes very much back to, and Josh, you've heard this a million times, uh, you know, the president always says the best politics is, is good policy, and the best policy is good politics. Um, and so this was, you know, this was a statement that was singular. You're right. I didn't hear this anyplace else in the convention in, the convention, um, in Charlotte or in Tampa. Uh, but it's something the president actually believes. And believes very, very strongly, and there's a there'll be a uh, there is a part of the speech was that he uh, that was not in his text that he talked later on about politics not having to be a blood sport. That's it's very much ingrained in him. So I think the first and foremost that was in the speech because the president thought it was the right thing to say. You know, when you look at the politics of this, it's what the country wants. Uh, you know, any you look at any poll that's out there. They all want people to stop fighting. Uh, I mean, there's an element of, uh, of the sport that people actually uh, like, and at the far end of each spectrum, uh, voters uh, do enjoy the, the sport or the blood sport. But the vast majority of the country is in the middle, you know, is tired of it. And I think the president really hit a note um, uh, that's both important for making progress, but very important for reaching these, you know, middle-of-the-road voters who will decide the election who wanted to hear that from somebody and they heard it from President Clinton. 
Let's hear something else uh, about uh, President Clinton. It was sort of a note of humor. I want to hear, Christy, the, when pre the president was talking about the broken clock. Why is this true? Why does cooperation work better than constant conflict? Because nobody's right all the time, and a broken clock is right twice a day. A little vintage humor, uh, Joe. Was that in the room as you guys were going through the practice sessions? Oh, sure. And again, Josh, you know, there's there's about there's about fifty of those. Uh, you know, it, it sort of uh, Clinton lines. I think the important thing, and I think it was, I think it was John Harris in uh, Politico today that made this point uh, that a lot of the speeches you hear at the convention are not in the voice of the speaker. They're prepared That's by right. consultants. They're prepared by the campaigns, they're out there for a specific reason. I think one of the reasons President Clinton's speech stood out was it was in his voice. This is a variation on a speech he gives almost every day of the year, whether it's before a huge audience, whether it's before uh, with, you know, world leaders, or whether you're sitting and having lunch and talking to him. This is the stuff that um, he believes in. And what you, what, you, what you really saw was a conversation he's been having around the world for the last 10 years. And it's interesting, too, Joe, as I think about the stagecraft and the polyoptics of this, too. At some point, you know, your work in the hotel room concluded. Uh, the last draft was written. Uh, it was transmitted to whoever was operating the teleprompter at the Time Warner Center arena. President Clinton walks out uh, to, and to the strains of Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. And when he's speaking, Joe, he doesn't do what I see a lot of other speakers do, both in Tampa and Charlotte, which seemed to me kind of the reaction to being programmed by a consultant or a, like a Sheehan uh, stage manager, which says, look at the tally lights straight across the hall into the camera because you're talking directly to the American people. I almost never saw direct eye contact with President Clinton watching it on the tube because I think he had this sense that the analysis of the speech and the press of the speech was going to play its part, but what he wanted to show was not that he was part of a TV show, but that he was having this conversation. So I was fascinated that I never saw him do the sort of, you know, lesson one of of a speech that's being televised speak right into the lens. Did you notice that too? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's 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 just not the way it works. The 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 innate um, uh, power. Of President Clinton's speech making and communication is his ability to whether he's talking to one person, a hundred people, or a thousand people, have them believe he's speaking to them. Uh, and you know, first and foremost, there were people in that hall, and that's who he was speaking to. Of course, he was aware that there was a much broader audience um, watching uh, through television, the internet, and you know, the many other ways you can watch a convention these days. But, uh, you know, the, he was making the case to, you know, to the people in the hall. And I think he understood that uh, if he could make a case, which, again, was not a, a, a terribly partisan piece, uh, speech, didn't have a lot of red meat. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't what I call a, you know, uh, you know left-wing liberal speech. It was, you know, it was a centrist speech. Uh, there were certainly uh, speeches that uh, were given at the convention that were much more red meat that got people charged up. But I think, the, you know, the president didn't, I, again, I think he didn't view this as I, I need to go in and get people to cheer or I need to go in and look 
and have a 30-second commercial. If you did ask, you know what, they've given me 30 minutes, I'll take 40, uh, and I'm going to have a conversation with the country. And I'm going to, you know, basically say, here are the things I think you need to know before you decide. You decide how you want to vote. If you remember, at the end, he said, if you believe certain things, don't vote for us. But if you believe other things, vote for Barack Obama. Did you have a, talk, a chance to talk to President Clinton after the speech? I did not, uh, but uh, uh, I know that, you know, I think he felt very good about uh, the case he made. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, one of the, you know, one of the tasks of the speech, which I, I know that uh, he accomplished, well, which was to, it was to really free President Obama up from having to answer some of the silly charges that have been leveled against him. You know, I think the president very effectively took off the table some of the nonsense that uh, has been leveled, you know, whether it be the health care charges, whether it be uh, welfare reform or cuts in Medicare that the Republicans have been spending a lot of money running ads on. Uh, you know, it, it, he just the President Obama didn't need to do that because I think the, he, the President Clinton effectively ended those attacks uh, on Wednesday night. Joe, uh, I've been watching uh, Governor Clinton back in 1991 and 92, and then President Clinton gives speeches since 1993. And, of course, I followed throughout this last 12 years in his post-presidency. Certainly the first few years, uh, the effect of, uh, of leaving office and then the health challenges that he faced. But since I saw him last October... Uh, or November in Little Rock at the 20th anniversary of the launching of his 1992 campaign, and then into Wednesday night in Charlotte, the weight loss and the full gray hair versus the salt and pepper aside, the pre President Clinton seemed to re regain that youthful vigor that I remember from the 90s. What's your sense of sort of how the last 12 years have, have borne on him? Well, you know, it, it, as you well know, he there, there's there's never a dull moment in, in, in President Clinton's life. He's going nonstop uh, between the foundation, which takes an enormous amount of his time, between what he does for the Democratic Party, uh, which is really heating up now. He'll be on the road campaigning for President Obama next week uh, in several swing states, and and, and all the different ventures um, uh, that that he's involved in. You know, he, it, it, he really hasn't slowed down at all. Uh, but I think what you saw um, on Wednesday night in Charlotte is an energy that comes from how deeply he believes in the cause. Um, you know, I think, you know, if they had asked him to go door to door to make the case that he made before a national TV audience in Charlotte, he, he would do that. Uh, he just believes incredibly strongly that there's a right way to lead this government uh, and a wrong way, uh, and that, uh, unfortunately, because of the way our politics are set up now, people are not making informed decisions. And I think that's what you really saw uh, in this speech, which was not, you know, sort of, you know, either soaring rhetoric or, you know, red meat politics. You saw him explaining the choice, uh, and in fact, at times he was quite generous <laughs> with in talking about yep. Republicans uh, and as them and being honorable and well-meaning. Uh, but he just thinks that you know, after the last thirty or forty years, when you add up all the evidence, there is a stark choice, and if people are informed, an easy choice. 
Well, let's talk about that choice, Joe, just for a few minutes. Uh, Christy, let's hear the, uh, President Obama Thursday night in Charlotte, not just a candidate. You know, I recognize the times have changed since I first spoke to this convention. Times have changed and so have I. I'm no longer just a candidate. I'm the president. So, Joe, in, in the riff that followed, he talked about the burden that Abraham Lincoln faced in office. And this was sort of the, the sort of quiet moment for President Obama before the crescendo of the speech. What was your thought uh, watching this time back home and on the tube and uh, uh, getting a sense of where this president was and what he needs to do and he needs to do over the next 60 days? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think he that, that definitely was, um, it, to me, it was the bookend for the part of uh, President Clinton's speech. Uh, I thought, you know, perhaps the most important part of President Clinton's speech was that very short section in the middle where he talked about how no president, uh, as you remember, he said no president could have prepared the damage, no matter how great they were, in such a short period of time. And that was, I think, President Clinton vouching for, you know, what Obama's done uh, and vouching in a way with a credibility that there are only, you know, a few people in the world, you know, who can do that, you know, former presidents. Uh, I thought that was very important. And so I think that then set up um, uh, uh, President Obama's, um, that part of President Obama's speech where he talked about, you know, these are hard issues. This, this is not just about rhetoric. Uh, and restoring home. It's a uh, hope. It's about working through these things. And I think that's the case he's just going to have to prosecute over the next 60 days. I think, you know, uh, I, I don't know, know where the Republicans will come out strategically, uh, but I'm fairly certain after watching this week that for the Democrats, it's all going to be about this is a fundamental choice about the future. And, you know, the, the, the American public is just going to have to decide which path because they are very, very distinct paths for going forward. Joe, in 1996 or maybe 1995, you came to the Clinton-Gore campaign as the campaign press secretary, a precursor to your role as the White House press secretary. So you traveled the country with President Clinton on his reelect against Bob Dole, and you were, I believe, recruited again to perform a similar role for Senator Kerry in the final weeks and final months of his campaign in 2004. How does 2012 fit between that 96 reelect and that 2004 effort by Kerry, where he was trying to essentially do what Mitt Romney is trying to do now to President Obama? Yeah, I, you know, listen, I think there's, there, there's, you can actually, you know, draw a lot of parallels between uh, different campaigns. You can also torture the parallels. You know, this, this, feels like, um, you know, a little bit more like the 2004 model, or, you know, as President Clinton said in his speech, the country is frustrated. You know, they are impatient about getting things going. Uh, and they're trying to make a judgment here about, you know, whether it's time for a change or whether it's time to, as the president said, renew the contract of the current president. Uh, and I think you, what you'll see over the next 60 days will probably look a lot like 2004, uh, you know, where Governor Romney will make the case that the president's had enough time to turn things around. He hasn't done it. He doesn't deserve to be reelected. And President Obama will make the case that there's a fundamental choice here about going back to the policies that created the mess that he's been trying to clean up 
uh, and do we really want to move backwards instead of move forward? Uh, you know, I think the 96 campaign had a, had a completely different dynamic because as President Clinton talked about in his speech, the cycle, was, we were in a different part of the cycle. By 1996, I think the country recognized and to quote President Clinton, felt the positive economic changes that were going on. Um, and it just was, you know, it's from a political point of view, um, it, it was just very difficult for uh, Senator Dole, uh, you know, as, as, as good a record and bio as he had to prosecute the case for change when the public really wasn't looking for change. One last clip I want to play with you, Joe, is uh, from the undercard on Thursday night, Vice President Biden, uh, his, his message about never betting against the American people. There's one more thing. One more thing our Republican opponents are just dead wrong about. America is not in decline. America is not in decline. I've got news for Governor Romney and Congressman Ryan. Gentlemen, never, ever, it never makes sense. It's never been a good bet to bet against the American people. Joe, as I said in my introduction, uh, this is um, a, a question we'll face over the next 60 days of whether we basically rehire the incumbent. Uh, and as we've been looking at both Tampa and Charlotte and seeing people like uh, Marco Rubio and Julian Castro, uh, Chris Christie and Andrew Cuomo, uh, Joe Biden's role in 2016 and Hillary Clinton's was sort of off on the side as we say as we sort of spend a little time looking at the next generation. But let's presume an Obama re-election. What do you think happens in December with the beginnings of stirrings of 2016? Oh, I think it'll be a. Um, uh, a I, I'm not sure it'll even wait to December. First off, it'll probably happen the day after election day because that's what everyone uh, talks about. I think on the Republican side. Uh, there'll be a lot of soul searching. Um, uh, you know, I think we wh what we saw from this uh, primary cycle is their bench is very thin. Uh, they are in desperate need of the next generation to step up now because the older generation flailed around for uh, five or six months in front of the American public and, uh, you know, did, did not make a very positive expression. You know, on the Democratic side, I think we're going to have a two- kind of a you know, schizophrenic or split-screen uh, view. Uh, we're gonna, there, are, there are some obvious uh, Democratic leaders who will be ready by 2016 to step up, whether it be Governor Cuomo or Governor O'Malley. And then there'll be some leaders um, uh, who uh, are uh, or will use the time, I think, to figure out if uh, you know, it's time for them to go and do other kinds of public service or whether to stay in, um, you know, and go through the rigors of running for president again. And, you know, so I think there'll be interesting stories on both sides. Uh, and it will be, well, even though we'll want to talk about it from the first day, this will be one, at least on the Democratic side, that I don't think we're going to know really anything substantive for several years. Joe, as you uh, put Charlotte in the rearview mirror and, and maybe get back on the sidelines for uh, for the next 60 days, what were the things that you and your Facebook work colleagues were talking about before you uh, started focusing on President Clinton's speech and, and the way technology is transforming both this campaign and moving forward? 
Yeah, I mean, I listen, I think, you know, as the technology has always played uh, a determinative role in politics, and it's it's often the the one of the reasons that we switch uh, between party leader, we, we switch parties so often in this country is that the party out of power is forced to experiment and use technology in more aggressive ways, and then they get an advantage. I think you certainly saw that in 2008. You've seen it other times. Uh, the, the technology, particularly Internet-driven, uh, digital-driven social media, I think, really is where campaigns are going. Um, like I said several times this week, I think the candidates are being very aggressive and are at the forefront now of uh, using the tools the technology provides them to engage with voters in new and different and much more effective ways. Uh, as I look to the next cycle, I, I, and this is both a belief and a hope, uh, I think voters are really going to start harnessing those powers, and it's going to change the dialogue. We're going to move away from the 30-second negative ad. We're going to move away from campaign by photo op uh, and sound bite and really have um, a kind of conversation that, you know, our, you know that 200, 220 years ago we saw in, you know, among uh uh, voters and citizens and candidates, uh, while there's too many now to be face-to-face, technology offers us the ability uh, to have these conversations as two-way, as authentic, uh, and I think that's really what we're going to see down the road. Joe, Facebook friends, Twitter followers, by, by so many different measures on technology, Democrats have far outpaced Republicans. Why is that so, and uh, and what do you think that portends? On, on the one hand, you know it may be two to one, five to one in terms of Twitter followers, or something even greater than that. On the other hand, when you get to a uh, a state party referendum, like in North Carolina, uh, the Tea Party and the far right seem to motivate voters and get out to the polls. So, which might have more sway in sixty days in November? Sort of the the wired, uh, technology-driven Democrats or the activist, very engaged Tea Party on the left, on the right? Yeah, yeah, you know, listen, I'm not sure that's exactly the right choice. I think, uh, here's what I'd say uh, from from what I've seen. Both both parties have very, very aggressive, uh, well-funded online social media efforts. Both parties have different strategies, and I, you know, I'll leave it to the parties to discuss their strategies. And when this is all over, you know, we'll, everyone will take a look at this and say, you know, what part worked or what part didn't. But I don't think there's a, I don't think the the, the Democrats have the field, uh, or the Republicans are not engaged uh, on the social media front. They're just going about it in a different way. And, you know, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what works and what doesn't, who's who's more effective. My guess is it'll be a mixed result at the end. Uh, but I, my also, my you know, my prediction is, you know, if, if, if there are, for, if, instead of having, you know, in the next campaign, the bulk of your campaign workers, you know, sort of out and, you know, in the field someplace, you know, many, many more of them will be online uh, and engaging voters that way. Well, Joe Lockhart, former White House press secretary, founder uh, with a bunch of my friends of the Glover Park Group, hugely successful Washington uh, public relations and lobbying firm, and now vice president of corporate communications at Facebook, and my friend. Uh, Great seeing you in Charlotte. Thanks so much for your analysis, and look forward to seeing you down the road.
Glad to talk to you, and we'll see you soon. So we've just spent about 25 minutes talking to uh, former White House Press Secretary Joe Lockhart, uh, spent a lot of time breaking down President Clinton's speech, and it's apt, uh, as Joe was the press secretary, uh, to bring in a person who actually had a hand in crafting uh, hundreds of speeches for President Clinton, my old friend Josh Gottheimer, uh, who uh, was a White House speechwriter, uh, worked as director of strategic communications at Ford Motor Company, uh, as executive vice president of Burson Marsteller, and for the last few years has been back in the Obama administration as a special counselor and senior counselor to FCC chairman Julius Janikowski. Uh, but I ran into Josh very briefly in Charlotte. Uh, he was the, at the Bloomberg workspace. Uh, and as I explained at the top of the show, I, I went down just because I felt this lure of making sure that I didn't miss what may be a, a historic moment for my old boss, President Bill Clinton. I just wanted to be in Charlotte on Wednesday when that happened. And, and of course, I saw so many friends, and one of them was Josh. Uh, how, was, how did you spend your convention, Mr. Gottheimer? Welcome to Polyoptics. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to see you again, and uh, it's good to talk politics. Uh, I spent my convention... Uh, running around between the convention floor and then seeing people, and uh, uh, I'm very involved in an organization called Business Forward, which brings administration people together with business leaders uh, with, with an overall goal of, of seeing friends and also, as you just pointed out, not missing a convention. Uh, I think like you, I haven't missed one in, in uh, many conventions. And who could miss wanting to go see the boss, our old boss, Bill Clinton, speak, and uh, also, of course, seeing Barack Obama. So uh, uh, it was an incredible week, starting with Michelle Obama on the first night, and and uh, I think one thing I walked away with, I don't know if you did too, was uh, the parties was more unified than I've seen it in a long time, and, and there was a lot of energy in that room. Oh, there was a huge amount of energy in that room. I want to get to it. I, but I did forget, Josh, that, that the most important speech of the whole of the whole convention happened not uh, in the Times Warner Center Arena, but it was the first moment that I saw you. We got to hear Gene Sperling filibuster for an hour and a half at <laughs> Business Forward. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, some things don't change, but it's good to have, uh, you know, Gene Sperling as an economic advisor, and we, we all worked very closely with Gene uh, in, in, during the Clinton years. Uh, and the good news is it was very smart of them to bring him, put him back in that saddle because he, uh, there's no one smarter than, than Sperling when it comes to explain, not just economic policy, but explaining economic policy. And he's not uh, afraid to uh, bring all the facts in. So uh, that, that room at Business Forward was stacked with people who, who may be voting in the other way, uh, although they were polite enough to come to Charlotte and hear what people like Jack Lew, Gene Sperling had to say. Um, a question was put to Gene about whether uh, President Obama would embrace Simpson Bowles, and Gene sort of did a classic punt. Uh, how did you think by the end of the week the business forward crowd felt about their engagement with the Democrats and whether rehiring President Obama for the next four years would be a good move in their interests? I mean, you know, in some ways it's a little hard to tell how self-selecting the group is. But, um, uh, you know, as you pointed out, I, I don't know if it, how much mixed companies or if these are more Democratic-leaning business leaders, but what was very clear by the end of the week was that they were, um, or at least throughout the conversations I was having, was the, these are people who realize that you have to be fiscally responsible, but you also have to make significant investments in the future. Right? So you, you had a crowd there who understood that we can't just, um, uh, clean up our fiscal house and pay down our uh, and deal with the deficit, but also invest in R&D, which matters a lot of them. International trade is critical. Um, obviously, investing in education and, and workforce training, STEM. 
So uh, those are the themes I was hearing all week. Um, and also, everyone's very concerned about what's going to happen in lame duck with the fiscal cliff. Uh, that was also something that came up time and again of, of can, they, can the parties come together to actually deal with uh, the economic challenges? And, and uh, I think, and I'm sure you heard the same thing, Josh, that if, if, we, if we have the same economic uncertainty around the budget and uh, if, if we and the sequester takes place and, and uh, things are cut unnecessarily and the tax rates are unclear and uncertain, we're just going to drive a lot more uncertainty to the market. And that also, the uncertainty, as you know, from the business perspective, drives a lot of anxiety. So uh, those are the, the big things that we heard over and over again that I heard people ask questions about. Josh, you spoke uh, just a minute ago about the Democrats seemed unified. And putting on sort of our producer's hat, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you worked you worked at Person Marcella for so long, you wrote so mm-hmm. many of these speeches. Um, the, the sense that this room was set up lengthwise and it was a smaller room, and the way that the the electronic backdrop was used, the way lighting was used, uh, compared to the way the Republicans were in Tampa, and certainly the way the show was directed for television. You know, when I saw any cutaway shot, it showed, first of all, dense humanity, people packed in together, so it looked like they were all there, uh, and it also showed diversity of color and, and national origin, compared to what seemed more like a news coverage of Tampa, mm-hmm. a lot of empty seats, a lot of sort of people chatting amongst each other, talking on cell phones. The the speeches were great, but what about the production elements gave that sense of unity? I listen, these were a quality that only you could produce. Um, um, the, the production, I, I actually was struck by how well it looked uh, in the hall and out of the hall uh, on TV, because I was watching like you were. And uh, they, I thought that the, it was smaller. People said at first, you know, they were concerned because the arena was smaller. But actually, it worked in a way that made it feel inside cozy and vibrant. And outside, you can't really, of course, tell size. And the way it was set up, you couldn't. And between the screen, which I thought was very effective, uh, and the way, and the layout, uh, you just, the energy I thought was brimming over into the, into the sky, uh, into people's living rooms. So I thought it was an A plus in terms of production. Um, uh, you know, and in the speeches themselves, I think they did an effective job of intermingling speeches with video. You know, people Absolutely. people tend to take well to video, and, and you know, you can produce and do a lot more with the video. And I, I thought they also had a very effective use of. There was a lot of tape they put together for the yeah, programming. Yeah, ton. Yeah. It, it, you know, video also serves to shut people up. And stop yeah. side and That's stop side conversations, and and when a person is about to walk out who you may not immediately know, but you see a little video clip, you pause because they use music and they really blast the crap out of that room to say, yeah. "Shut the heck up! It's time for another speaker." That's a great. Po- That's a really good point, and, and I thought because it's a great point because you know, a lot of people they used were as we you know we like saying the business real people, right? I mean they they were they did a good job of bringing a ton of business executives in the private sector to sort of give that validation, and also people who were affected by Barack Obama's, President Obama's policies from the, his first term, right? So whether that's health care or um, uh, education uh, and people who were touched by what Barack Obama did. So uh, I, I actually thought that was also very well done because, as you pointed out, they also brought, introduced it by video and gave context to who those people were.
I want to play a clip of uh, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel talking about the letters uh, President Obama reads every day. Every night, President Obama reads 10 letters from everyday Americans. When I met with the President at the end of each day, he made sure he had their letters to read at his residence. Letters from people just hoping for someone in power to understand their struggles. I can't tell you how many times, whether we were discussing the economy, healthcare, or energy prices, the President walked to his desk, take out one of the letters, and read them to us, and say, this is who we are fighting for. Parents working hard to save for their child's education. Middle-class Americans fighting tooth and nail to hold on to their jobs, their homes, or their life savings. It is their voices that President Obama brings to the Oval Office. It is their values I saw him fight for every day. Josh, we were talking about... Uh, Josh, we... Josh, we've heard about the letters before, and we were just talking about the use of video. And mm -hmm. as you look at, at it, you see so many pictures that you presume first are, are photographers going out and, and catching real people and, and solar panels flipping from left to right. But mm -hmm. you also see photography and video taken by White House photographer Pete Souza and videographer Arun Chaudhry uh, and the White House video unit. It struck me, Josh, how in terms of this production, so much of it used the, the, the features of government, the White House Photography Office and the, and the video available and what Jeff Margolis was probably able to edit together to, to tell the story. And it, it seemed like all of these Obama trips and all of these uh, photo ops, even with things like that he's done with uh, the FCC Chairman Julius Janikowski, had an eventual reuse here in Charlotte. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really good point. I mean, I'm I'm trying to think back to how during the Clinton years and and the uh, the conventions that we used it, um, I, they seem to, as you pointed out, to use it even that much more. And I think the bigger point of of why it was so important to capture uh, the president at work and with real people are two for two reasons. One, um, he uh, you know he because he's been, it's been said that he is more aloof, or that he, you know, people don't know him as well. Because, uh, you know, I think Bill Clinton said it best when he is, what do you say? He burns for America on the inside. He's quiet on the out. He's uh, he's cool on the outside. Burns burns hot for America on the inside. Right. But I think the pictures and the stories bring more life to just the depth of compassion this man has, the president has. You know, I think it's and it's it's very important to show that because sometimes he is so cool. Um, and that's and, and and by the way, he has to be cool to deal with a lot of the tough news he deals with and has been dealing with with his economy over the years and the wars. The second thing I think that was really interesting about the real people is because he doesn't have as many statistics piled up yet, right? Uh, in terms of the uh, the economy is coming back on the jobs front. We see some that the numbers are, are starting, but you know they're 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 not there where they where he's even admitted they don't need to be yet. They need to find other ways to show accomplishments, and I think by showing real people and how it's touched their lives, it's it's a softer, a qualitative way of showing accomplishment versus necessarily the quantitative maze we, we might have had at the end of the Clinton years when we were talking about 23 million new jobs. It was interesting. Even last night, the president um, uh, cited—I don't know if you caught this, Josh—he cited President Clinton's 
you know, remind people about the 90s, the accomplishments we had during the Clinton years of by the way, this, this, these policies work, and he and 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 crowed about the statistics during the Clinton years, right? Because they don't have necessarily the same statistics piled up just yet. They will in a few more years. Let's hear Josh a little bit of uh, President Obama last night talking about Romney and Ryan and their their acquaintance with foreign policy. My opponent and his running mate are new to foreign policy. But from all that we've seen and heard, they want to take us back to an era of blustering and blundering that cost America so dearly. After all, you don't call Russia our number one enemy, not Al-Qaeda, Russia, unless you're still stuck in a Cold War mind warp. So, so, Josh, here comes the part of the speech where you basically uh, cut your opponent to shreds through a little bit of humor and mockery. Uh, yeah. How does this work in the speechwriting process? How many drafts do you go through? And then how do you go through sort of the, the pacing coaching to say, uh, to have that brief pregnant pause before and after the word new? And then how does it end up on the stage? Uh, uh, I'll say one thing first of all, we'll get to that. Whichever, would you ever think that a Democrat is using foreign policy against a Republican and <laughs> slicing and, and slicing and dicing with that? Um, it's, it's incredible to me that the Governor Romney didn't include anything about Afghanistan and the accomplishments there, um, which I felt was a huge blunder in his speech. And I think they saw that, the speechwriter saw that as a huge opportunity. Obviously, they're always going to talk about foreign policy, but they realized it was a weakness. Uh, that much more so, and and drove it home. It's a it was a it's a huge contrast point. So to answer your question, you know, when you're writing, uh, first of all, on the drafts, you, you know, I worked on the 2000 Democratic Convention uh, with President Clinton, and uh, it, 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 it sticks out as one of the greatest experiences in terms of the product, and one of the most difficult experiences in terms of how the sausage was made in the process. We went through just scores of drafts over over several weeks and and the last three days in particular when we got president clinton who's famous for this to to really focus in the last seventy two hours um, uh... we were up straight i think i saw four hours in those seventy two hours i think president obama uh, you know, I know his speechwriters and uh... I, I, he's a little more disciplined in that process and uh... but you're still going through just scores of drafts and you're working closely with the political operation and the pollsters and the message uh, gurus um, uh, to make sure that you spend the right amount of time hitting on uh, on certain points that are reaching out to demographics a that you have strength in to strengthen them even further to get your turnout up with your base, but also of course to appeal to those where you're you might have a weakness. So they're doing very well with women, of course, and with with minorities, um, um, with the standard bearer, uh, left leaning more left leaning uh, groups. Um, and uh, not as well with with working class and white working class. So and and independent, they need help with independence. So you you see more broad cross appeal, uh, more discussion. You saw a lot of discussion of of his uh, of business and and how he he believes in in free markets. And he talked about that last night. And and also uh, an appeal to to um, change, bring back the words of change and how you were the change. Uh, which would remind people of why they support him in the first place and get get them fired up, um, and and to look like a very reasonable and and it's interesting if you look at the reports, there's less specifics than you think, but it sounded state of the union like in the sense that it, it, it was a plan, right? It was a, uh, and and.
Governor Romney's speech, you didn't get a sense of it was, it was softer, but you didn't get a sense of, of a vision and where he wanted to take the country besides one specific on a jobs number of how many jobs he would create, um, uh, which didn't actually have any detail supporting it. Uh, our old boss, uh, the president, President Clinton, yeah, did an effective job making this argument. But President Obama last night, by by at least articulating a vision, can help people think that there is a plan going forward to sign up for. And that was a huge weakness in Romney. Well, I think that's right. I think I, as I was talking with Joe, I think there's there is a confidence that that uh, if they just follow their plan, they'll be successful in November. That they had moments of high drama in this convention with uh, Michelle Obama, Julian Castro, Bill Clinton, even Jennifer Granholm and others. Everyone else sort of got the got the fire and brimstone up, and it was President Obama's responsibility. Uh, and Joe and I talked about the the Abraham Lincoln reference to sort yes. of get get mellow and talk about his job and he didn't you know a lot of his work had already been done by by the end of thursday night I, I, that's exactly right i mean I, I think that he went in with he was so well set up you know which, which brings the other question about rehearsing um i think the bar was high right I mean, it was, it, it's hard to follow bill clinton uh and especially uh, uh and others who are you know i thought john Kerry did a very good job last night and so did oh yeah and so did joe, and so did joe biden I mean, so the bar was high. It's interesting, you know, the, so the reference point is even higher, and Barack Obama knows how to deliver a speech. Um, uh, uh, so I, I thought, interestingly, uh, uh, you know, people said, and well, wasn't, they were tough on him, I think, in some of the reviews this morning, because, because he went in, you know, he, had to, he would have to hit a grand slam home run, uh, even for Barack Obama uh, to to get those kind of reviews, and I'm sure he reversed re- rehearsed uh, many times. I, I know that because he was finished early. I know they were they were practicing yesterday and, and leading into it, and with the speech coaches. And that part, as you pointed out earlier, is very important. I think as Barack Obama, Barack Obama knows as Jim Messina knows that he doesn't need to hit a grand slam or a home run. He needs to get 270 electoral votes. Uh, yeah. I, w- I want to flip back. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, that you were on the plane in 2004 with the aforementioned Senator John Kerry from Massachusetts. I want to hear a little bit from him on Thursday night as well uh, about Rocky IV. Every president of both parties for 60 years has worked for nuclear arms control, but not Mitt Romney. Republican secretaries of state, from Kissinger to Baker, Powell to Rice, President Bush, 71 United States senators all supported President Obama's New START treaty, but not Mitt Romney. He's even blurted out the preposterous notion that Russia is our number one political, geopolitical foe. Folks, Sarah Palin said she could see Russia from Alaska. <laughs> Mitt, Mitt Romney talks like he's only seen Russia by watching Rocky IV. <laughs> that Dolph Lundgren <laughs> reference. That's a great line. Such hey, a great Josh, line. you were on the plane with this guy, 2004. He barely uh, lost to George W. Bush just by by the votes in Ohio, 86,000 votes or so. If he had spoke like that in 2004, would we just be saying a fond farewell to President Kerry now? Uh, there's, there's many, it was pretty complicated, 2004, on, on several fronts, and... Uh, uh, John Kerry knows how. To, when John Kerry had, had many speeches where he, where he delivered, you know, uh, much more than I think people give him credit for in retrospect. It's t- 
actually being uh, under pressure every day and as exhausted as you are as a candidate, as, as you know from other campaigns, what you've seen, it's tough to uh, to focus and to necessarily uh, uh, do what needs to be done. I mean, Barack Obama, you watch him a lot now on many days. He's tired as well, and you get beat yeah. just doing that job, and or running or being president and having to run. So. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to armchair on what would have happened no four, but I will say that John Kerry has done, you know, continues to do an incredible and, and a job, especially on foreign policy. And you know, in the next administration, he'll make a great Secretary of State. Josh Gottheimer, White House speechwriter extraordinaire, uh, tremendously accomplished professional in the area of public relations. Most recently, uh, with the Federal Communications Commission, working so closely with. FCC Commissioner Julius Janikowski on uh, providing broadband access across the country. Thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. It was a great uh, interview. Really appreciate you having me on. You know, having had these conversations with both Joe Lockhart and Josh Gottheimer on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS on Polyoptics, and as we say goodbye to this convention season, I'm I'm left with some reflections. One is that I. As I told Phil Alonji and Adam Belmar last week, I thought the Republicans did a, a, a good job with their show. I thought the stage was so much better than it was in 2008. I thought some of the speeches were really compelling. Uh, as I said, I thought that Clint Eastwood was a lost 12 or 15 minutes and it tended to distract everyone from what was going to happen for the rest of the night, which was a keynote address by Marco Rubio, a future party star, and then the uh, the intro the introduction of of Governor Romney and then Governor Romney's own address it was everyone who should have been focusing on Rubio and Romney were instead sort of making jokes about Clint Eastwood there was that walkout uh, in which he walked through this wide corridor uh, and didn't have a lot of hands to shake um, and then we go get to Charlotte and we get back to this cramped uh, arena the Time Warner Center arena that and this backdrop that if I thought sh- Tampa was good. Charlotte was just amazing. And then these every night we're really well entertained by these speeches. Michelle Obama on Tuesday, President Bill Clinton on Wednesday, even Joe Biden, John Kerry, Jennifer Granholm on Thursday. And yeah, President Barack Obama doing what he needed to do to wrap up the convention and begin this final march for the next 60 days. I'll be watching closely uh, and hope you will join me too. Uh, And people like Joe Lockhart, Josh Gottheimer, Adam Belmar will join us again as we continue to watch these final two months of campaign 2012. Thanks for joining us on Polyoptics. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.